Welcome to Insights into ESG, a new podcast series brought to you by KPMG and the Crown Dependencies. Earlier this year, we launched KPMG Impact, bringing together new and existing ESG commitments under one umbrella. In each episode, we'll discuss the many different aspects of ESG with our guests, how they're reacting to the challenges, and how they are adapting to the new business environment around them. Welcome to another episode of Insights into ESG. My name is Tim Shalcross, Senior Manager at KPMG in the Crown Dependencies, and I'm delighted to be joined again by Harry Briggs, our Director in the ESG team. You may have noticed that our episodes have been a little thin on the ground recently, but that's because Harry has been on to comment for the last for the last nine months. So I just wanted to take some time with Harry today to look at what he did in a comment and what the outputs were that and uh, and what he's now going to be doing going forward. So welcome back, Harry. It's good to have you back. How's it? How's it like being back at KPMG? Hey Tim, good to catch up again. Yep, uh, back full time now at KPMG. So all, all fun, super busy, yes. but all good. So in terms of this this comment then, so who is it with and what was it about? Sure. So um, I joined an organization called Accounting for Sustainability, um, and they're an NGO that Prince Charles actually set up back in 2004. And they exist to lobby CFOs to incorporate ESG into decision making. So way before any of us were really thinking about this, back in 2004, Prince Charles was setting up an organization to, to do exactly what's become relevant today. Um, and they're, they're really successful organizations. So they, they operate some formal networks of CFOs from large multinationals, um, and they've got networks in Europe and US and in Asia. They're also very well connected into um, accounting bodies and asset owners. So they're kind of hitting the economy from different angles, um, and they've been pretty instrumental in some really key events in the sustainability world over the past um, decade or more. So they were behind the Integrated Reporting Council, um, which became part of the Value Reporting Foundation, which became part of the IFRS's uh, new board that they've just established. And uh, they're also quite instrumental in, in the scenes behind um, TCFD being set up when, when Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg set that up back in, I think that was 2015. Um, so really important organization, incredible access um, to some large multinationals. Um, so really good time I had with them for six months. Yeah. And I suppose from the I suppose six months, was it in any way connected with COP26 or is that almost, a, I suppose, coincidental or, or has this organization I suppose, worked alongside COP26 because obviously that, that was quite a big event back in November. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of hit halfway through my comments. So they were heavily involved, um, the organisation behind that, and a lot of the key events coming out of that were very closely linked to their work. So probably the number one thing that came out of COP26 was the creation of the International Sustainability Standards Board, which sits under the IFRS Foundation. Um, and that's trying to um, converge and align existing sustainability standards into one body. Um, and that's very much some of the work that I've been doing with this organization around um, sustainability reporting. So the project I was specifically running was actually around the, the practical implementation of sustainability reporting. So you have a lot going on at the moment with, with standards and frameworks and things like that. But actually, in terms of um, the how of it all, um, I spent six months working with a project team of about 20 to 30 heads of sustainability reporting from some of the world's biggest multinationals, really deep diving on, on some of the practical issues that you, you get when you're going down this road. Um, and they're in a way, they're sort of agnostic to standards. So it was really enlightening. 
So just in terms of the standards, in terms of when you say the um, is it the ISSB, so that effectively fits under the IFRS um, so framework in that regard. Is, is that almost the direction of travel now in terms of obviously from an accounting perspective, we've got the IFRS. Is, do, do you think it'll almost get to a point where I suppose that will kind of be put to the wayside and I suppose the ISSB will, will almost be more mainstream and, and take control or do you think there's room for both? Yeah, so what, what's going on, I suppose, um, over the last couple of decades, there's been no real um, official standards, if you like, for sustainability reporting. So you've had a bunch of private institutions set up to do this, largely through um, philanthropy. They've been set up and funded. And there are things like the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, or the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board in the US, which is called SASB. Um, and they've been really successful at bringing some, some thought and some structure around how corporates do sustainability reporting. Um, but they were, if you like, unofficial. They were sort of private NGO-type organizations. The reason um, the world, if you like, has, has come around to IFRS is because the IFRS Foundation which does have the accounting standards board underneath it, and now in parallel has this new sustainability board. That foundation itself is overseen by IOSCO, who are the international organization of securities regulators. So you've got a kind of regulatory oversight of the IFRS, which gives them so much authority when they're producing their standards. That's why the accounting standards have been so successful. And hopefully that's why the sustainability standards will be so successful. And in terms of convergence and how that's going to work so as part of forming the ISSB at COP26 they also announced that it's actually going to merge with the Value Reporting Foundation which itself is already a merger of SASB and the Integrated Reporting Council um, and they're also merging with CDSB so just just technically speaking they're, they're physically merging some existing standards into the new board which is actually going to consolidate and make life easier and then they're working with these other organizations to try and align what they're producing uh, with them as well. So globally, it is getting simpler. I suppose the one issue with it all that I can flag is that the European Union are already going down their own route in terms of their own set of standards. They're producing something called the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. Now, you know, in, in essence, it feels like that's unhelpful and you've got two different sets of new standards going on. They have both said that they're going to try and align as best as possible, albeit there's a kind of general view that Europe wants to go further down the sustainability route than the ISSB is going to go down. Um, but in theory, you should be able to comply with the ISSB and then maybe take a little extra step to get compliance with uh, the European standards. It's not going to be a total rewrite. Um, we will see what happens in practice on that. Though. And I suppose just in terms of that, from a when you mentioned this, because initially it was set up almost from a, I suppose, a philanthropy perspective. So how has that now, I suppose, moved more onto, say, regulatory, I suppose, landscape? So from from a, I suppose, an idea of, of some, I suppose, I suppose, a group of people wanting to enact climate change and, and, and put this force for good through. How is that now merging over onto, I suppose, regulation, having big corporates who may not necessarily think it's a good idea to necessarily, um, I suppose, sacrifice profits for I suppose climate change how how's that now I suppose coming back into the mainstream when it started from from one side to come back into the middle yeah the the regulation in this area is really interesting because 
a lot of regulation will typically come through where there's been some sort of issue or problem and there's a need to build trust in the market or protect the market. So you've had a fraud or something like that. So new regulations come in to, to prevent it happening again. Here, regulations are sort of playing catch up with societal expectations. So you've had this groundswell movement of um, normal people wanting their products and their money to be more sustainable. So if they're investing in their pension fund, they want that money to be doing good in the world as well as making a financial return. Um, if they're walking to the shop and buying a product or service, they want to know that that's a, a fair product or service. You know, They want to buy something that's fair trade, if you like, rather than uh, something that exploits people in the supply chain. So you, you started over the last couple of decades seeing this huge groundswell from society itself pushing trends this way. And you saw then the markets reacting to that. So corporates were having to adopt sustainable policies anyway. Investors were putting huge pressure on corporates because their own um, pension uh, fundees, if you like, uh, were wanting to see that their money was going into sustainable causes. So you had the market forces moving in this way anyway, and the regulations are just playing catch up with that. And actually, when you look at the consultations that were done, when you look at the feedback and responses post-regulation, it's overwhelmingly supportive um, and that's because it helps put all of this into some sort of framework and creates this kind of level playing field where everyone's got to disclose what they're doing on this front and then people have a better idea of what their money is actually doing um, so it's a it's a totally different concept when you're talking about regulation in this space versus other spaces i think and, and just in terms of going back to the the uh the issb as when we talk about regulation who's that actually for is it is it for listed businesses is it for financial services businesses is it for oil and gas businesses what who, who fits into what pot basically yeah so the way it's going to work is the issb will be an international organization that puts standards out there and then it will be down to different jurisdictions to adopt those standards in whichever way they see fit and what we're seeing at the moment in terms of um, approaches by different jurisdictions, the UK so far has gone heavy on climate. So they've brought out um, requirements to report under a framework called TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, something which is also feeding into the ISSB. Um, and that's saying that listed companies of any description need to report their climate impact under that framework. They've also said life insurers, banks, asset managers, large private companies in the UK all need to um, report their climate impact under this framework with a view to moving to ISSB in due course when it's actually created. That's slightly different to the EU approach, which is going more um, gung-ho on sustainability holistically. So not just climate, they're looking at what are the social impacts these companies are having, how much due diligence have they done on their supply chain. You know, it's no good having a, a product for sale from a company in the EU if the supply chain takes you back to forced labour um, or you know, being paid below the living wage in whichever jurisdiction that supply chain sits in. So there's a much more holistic approach going on from, from the EU. The UK are going to get there and they've got sort of enhanced sustainability regulation coming out for consultation this year which will move them more in line with that broader picture on sustainability but so far they've just been green the us is worth mentioning as well so we're starting to see the green shoots there and the sec are coming out to consultation um, imminently on mandatory climate disclosures in the us 
So that's going to be a really important consult, and we'll see what the scope there is, but it's likely to be the listed companies and um, large asset managers and banks. And how will that affect businesses who are, say, cross-jurisdictional, so that may have, I suppose, operations then in, say, the UK, say, the EU, and then the US, in terms of they're each going to fit under slightly different, obviously, you've got the, the ISSB on top, or if each jurisdiction is going to be slightly different, and how will that actually work in practice? Yeah, so it is going to be slightly difficult because you will have different requirements applying to different subsidiaries of your group and your operations in those jurisdictions. Um, however, all, all the regulations coming through, even if they're not saying you must adopt or comply with the ISSB, they are broadly going to be in line with those requirements. So if at the core of your operation, you're doing reporting under ISSB, it's going to be very straightforward to pivot to any additional disclosures you may need in any given jurisdiction um, and hopefully fairly low impact and then just looking at our jurisdiction so uh, jersey guernsey and the isle of man where do we fit within that do we do we fall in line with what the uk are doing do we do we kind of fall in line with what the eu are doing or can we kind of come up with our own i suppose framework that that we can fit in and therefore must be market leaders with with say regulatory perspective say actually basal businesses over in in the crown dependencies and we've got this robust framework in, in place yeah so um slightly different approaches by the islands but all, all broadly light touch and i think the reason for that is a lot of the businesses operating out of the channel islands are going to be caught by these other rules in other jurisdictions so if you're a listed company, so the Alaman have got a, a few listed companies, then you're likely going to be caught by the UK rules around climate reporting, which will eventually morph into broader sustainability reporting. Um, all three islands have a, an asset management presence. So if, if those asset managers are raising money in Europe, they're caught by the European SFDR regulations. If they're raising money in the UK, they will soon be caught by the um, UK sustainability disclosure regulations. So the regulators here have to be mindful of what's going on in the other jurisdictions and the extent to which um, firms operate here are already caught by them because the last thing you want to do is start duplicating reporting and regulation. Where I think they, they will focus um, over the coming kind of 12 to 18 months will be licensees that operate here as service providers where we're not caught by those regulations. Um, and I think what we'll see is more around the risk management and governance piece. So how are firms operate here taking into account climate and sustainability risks in their business model? Yeah. Um, and I think those are the questions that we're seeing our clients asking themselves already anyway, regardless of regulation. So I think the regulation will be proportionate when it comes in. Yeah. And, and then just I suppose, switching back to your comment again, you, you mentioned earlier in terms of just had incredible access to I suppose a multitude of, of firms and individuals um, so what was the the biggest thing that you learned throughout that, that whole process I think there's um, I guess there's two strains uh, to answer that question one is the detail of it all so we went into a phenomenal amount of detail around things like uh, the governance of sustainability reporting the data collection and control um, the materiality assessments within sustainability reporting and then the kind of quality and level of disclosure that comes with all of that so there's a huge amount of learning there um, which is really informative and, and relevant to um, all of our clients that are doing doing this to some degree but the other piece then is is the higher level side of it all so the secondment um, 
culminated, if you like, with a, a round table that was hosted by Prince Charles um, at St. James's Palace that I was able to attend. So I got to meet Prince Charles, which was pretty cool. Um, and that was attended by probably 20 to 30 CFOs of these multinationals uh, represented from Asia, Europe and, and the US. And it was really interesting being in a room and talking to them about what they're A, doing currently and B, where they think this needs to go in order to achieve kind of global alignment and global convergence around sustainability standards. So what some of the interesting takeaways for me was that they all felt that mandatory reporting through regulation was absolutely necessary. Uh, um, and that's quite rare that you get a business asking for, for more regulation. Um, they also actually, we, there was a poll that was done on them as well, and 100% actually said that they feel assurance over sustainability reporting is fundamental to building trust in the markets, which again is quite unusual to see um, a group of corporates effectively inviting additional cost into the process. But they see the value that you get out of reporting. So they want to do reporting on sustainability. This is something that's kind of critical to their um, business objectives, but they want it to be done correctly. So they want to know that if they're putting information out there, it's on the same basis as their competitors are putting information out there. And that also that there's uh, a little bit of robustness around that data. So they're not putting out information that's wrong. So they welcome that assurance process. And um, I suppose just on that, Obviously, that's positive from, from say, 100% saying that, that there should be mandatory reporting and, and, and very pro that. But then, which is fine to say that, but when it actually comes at a cost to the business, do you think that that mentality would still be there? And I, I know we've chatted a few times about, I suppose, people that have said that they're, they're keen on regulation, but as long as it doesn't, um, I suppose, mean it's at a cost to their business or whether it's a cost to profit. So, how can we then look to instill that cultural cultural change that means i suppose sustainability is actually more important than profit and and when it actually comes down to it do you think these these I suppose, business leaders not just the ones that was at the, at the round table but i suppose globally now do you think when it actually comes down to it, actually you might you might have to um i suppose appreciate it's gonna be less profit but you actually do more benefit to the environment or, or do more benefit to um i suppose the the, the culture within your business it's an interesting question. It's one that um, comes up quite a lot. You know, this concept of having to sacrifice return or sacrifice profit for um, sustainability purposes. I think it's really important that we demonstrate the value inherent in sustainability. Um, and I think we're, we're at this kind of tipping point now where you can demonstrate value and you can therefore align the capitalist agenda with sustainability you're not having to sacrifice profit anymore in order to be sustainable and in fact if you adopt sustainable business practices you're likely to enhance the value of the company um, or indeed even the profit because consumers will buy your products over your competitors if they're sustainable or vice versa they won't buy your products um, if they're not sustainable and your competitor is offering a sustainable alternative so i think we'll see a lot more of that kind of activity going on and I think from a, an investment perspective, the level of due diligence that's happening from investors on companies now, whether that's in the listed space, um, which is actually quite confusing at the moment, or different ESG rating agencies and things, but actually there's a lot of activity there in order to do that DD. Um, but we're also seeing a huge rollout of due diligence across the private market space and private capital. 
um, and everyone is doing it and therefore they're avoiding companies um, that are not engaged in this process. And they're also seeing value opportunities where there are companies that perhaps perform badly on sustainability, but can be transitioned during the ownership period and sold for a premium at the end. So I think actually it's, there isn't a trade-off anymore between profit and sustainability. I think sustainability will enhance profit and return. Yeah. And, and is that where the regulation or that is that where they need to get the regulation right? So I, I know after the roundtable, we were, we were talking and, and, and you mentioned there was one participant there who shared, shared the frustration that they couldn't get credit for, for moving their entire uh, fleet of vehicles, which is quite sizable to electric because their winter tires didn't qualify. So is, is it important that there is that common sense around and there is that balance? Otherwise, do you mean, people might go so far down one way that they think, oh, actually, what was, what was the point of even doing that when we're not actually going to get the credit for it? Yeah, absolutely. That story was um, quite kind of shocking, really. So that was a, a European-based um, distribution business that, as you said, moved their entire fleet to electric, um, was trying to get credit for it under the EU taxonomy, which is um, having a phased rollout at the moment. But the way that that taxonomy has gone um, meant that they couldn't get the credit because, as you say, the winter tyres didn't qualify. That's not helpful. That's just completely going against um, the underlying aim of the taxonomy, which should be to encourage transition, to encourage decarbonisation. So I think there's a lot to learn from that taxonomy process because there was so much hope sat behind it. And then the level of detail it went into and just sort of got itself trapped. I mean, the, the animosity towards the EU taxonomy is absolutely palpable when you speak to CFOs in Europe that are having to comply with it because it just does not achieve its, its aims. Um, and it's particularly relevant for the UK who are kind of developing their own taxonomy at the moment. Um, and if you, if you get things like that wrong, it can be damaging. Um, and there will have to be a kind of process to try and, and backfill some of those issues, I think. Um, but definitely the regulation that's coming through at the moment sort of takes the form of um, disclosure. So companies need to just explain clearly and honestly and being fair and balanced what their sustainability impact is and the good thing about the regulation is it forces you to disclose um, areas where you're weaker as well as areas where you're stronger so this concept of greenwashing that's been floating around um, for years now often we see that coming through when companies report things they're doing well and then omit things they're doing badly yeah. and regulation just means you can't hide those those emissions you have to yeah. disclose them yeah, I suppose that was going to be my next question. Just just following on from that balance side is 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 obviously with, with greenwashing. How how does that framework and how is the framework structured to I suppose prevent that greenwashing and make it I suppose fairer for, for everyone really? Yeah, I guess it it tackles it from a, a two ton two prong perspective. So you've got regulation hitting the investment world, which is saying actually you need to have a stated policy that explains how you're taking sustainability risks into account during the, the investment process. So it doesn't mandate that they do it. It just mandates that they disclose what they're doing. And then what we'll see is capital will migrate to those investment managers that are actually um, adopting a responsible investment policy. And we've already seen that with the USFDR coming in, responsible investment policies have gone through the roof across the asset management sector. So you've now got a, a set of engaged investors um, that are specifically looking at the sustainability credentials of potential investments. And then you've got the next regulation side, which is coming through disclosure and saying to these companies, you must 
adopt this framework for disclosure, which captures all of your activity. Um, you can't just cherry pick positive activity anymore. So you must make it clear where you're positive and where you're negative from an environmental or um, societal point of view. So you've now got engaged investors analyzing information that companies are forced to give them. And connecting those dots means that you will start to see capital moving into that um, transition journey where you can buy the company that's perhaps not performing so well and during the ownership period make it better and therefore exit at a higher multiple or you'll see capital migrating to managers that adopt those res responsible investment policies um, and moving away from those firms that, that don't. Yeah, and I suppose, join us to comment, in, I suppose, along that sort of thread as well, what's been the balance between the E, the S and the G from what businesses are, I suppose, concentrating on? I know you mentioned earlier, I suppose, one set of regulations, I think it was, I think you mentioned it was the UK is, is focused more maybe on the on the E side of things, but, but how do we get that right balance across that? Uh, the EVS and the G? So I think government, governance has been there, there or thereabouts for a long time now because because of corporate scandals in the early noughties and things like that, you know, we've seen leaps and bounds around governance occurring. Um, and, and that will continue to improve because we still see corporate failures. But, you know, we have pretty well-established corporate governance codes across most jurisdictions now. Environment has definitely been the theme of the last... 24 months, albeit that was work that really kick-started with the Paris Accords in 2015. And there's a sense of urgency there. That's that's what's driving the government policy agenda, you know, adopting net zero into government policy. Now that's filtering down into different sectors and industries, the banning of combustion engines, things like that. So they're seeing a, a direct impact on business models as a result of net zero policy. So that's where a lot of the focus has been now. We're definitely seeing a huge upsurge in um, understanding the societal impact. And I suppose what we mean by that is kind of internal to the business. So what is your uh, gender pay gap like? What is your diversity like? What are your policies like in respect of treating people fairly within your organization? And then we're seeing it through the supply chain, um, which is where it gets really interesting because there's some huge industries that have uh, issues, shall we say, in the supply chain where it's, it's complicated to begin with because it might stretch two or three phases back until you get to a raw ingredient. When you get to a raw ingredient, there might be all sorts of issues to the environment, um, which aren't necessarily climate, but things like deforestation, water scarcity is a big one that has huge socioeconomic impacts um, in jurisdictions where there's scarce water supply. So how that then gets dealt with as it flows through, how you're treating people through that supply chain, you know, as the farmer in West Africa or something like that, getting what they need to get when they're growing their cocoa, all that sort of stuff then comes into play. And you're being forced, particularly in the EU, you're being forced to disclose that now. Um, and I think that'd be quite enlightening to the uh, investor market when they start analyzing some of that information. Yeah. And then just, just going back to the round table, when will be when will we be able to see the outputs from that? Is, is that imminent? Is it going to be in a few months time? And um, I think there'll be a, an output per se from, from that roundtable I attended to that was um, largely informing the CFO agenda um, within that group for the, the next year or so in order to try and achieve convergence. There isn't going to be an output from my comment, which are some briefing papers um, diving into those, those detailed issues I mentioned before, the, the governance and um, 
data collection, materiality, those kind of things, they will probably come out um, in a couple of months' time because there's a lot going on this month. We're going to have the SEC consultation come out. We're expecting exposure drafts on standards from the ISSB, from the EU, and we're um, going to see hopefully the UK sustainability disclosure regulation coming out in the next month or so. So whilst all of that is going on, it's probably not the best time to be putting those papers out. Um, but shortly after the start of summer, I think we'll, we'll release those. Yeah. And, and when they are released, where, where will people be able to find them? Obviously, from a KPMG perspective, we look to, to push them out through our channels. Is that the best way that people will be able to get sight of them? Yeah, we'll, we'll push them out through our channels. Um, there's a lot of really good guidance and information on sustainability um, on the Accounting for Sustainability website. They've, they've been producing guides that deep dive into different areas um, for a number of years now, and they're all free uh, to the market. So definitely that's somewhere to look. Um, and I guess I'm using a lot of my learnings and findings from that work um, in my client advisory work at the moment. So helping clients who are just starting on their ESG journey, whether they're a corporate um, trying to pull their policies together or possibly they're an asset manager that's looking at how to adopt a responsible investment policy and then how to flow that through their portfolio. Um, it's all informing that work that I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, and I suppose that probably leads on to my last question in terms of we, we did a webinar a few weeks back on, I suppose, journey to net zero and how we can help clients, I suppose, achieve that net zero, um, I suppose, pathway really. Now you have the comments finished, what what are you focusing on now within KPMG? What sorts of things are you helping clients with? Um, if clients have got issues, what, what sort of things are they coming to you with that you can hopefully give them the, the right answer to and steer them on the right path? Yeah, so I guess um, it depends where the potential client is on their ESG journey. Now, what I'm getting a lot of at the moment are firms coming to me saying, I know I need to do something on ESG. I just don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. Um, and so definitely we can kind of make that landscape of um, all the different topics that fall under ESG. We can make that a bit clearer. We can talk to them about how to approach it and how to identify what is or isn't relevant for them and how to pull that thinking together and actually uh, report it, whether internally or externally. Um, because if you report it, you can then manage it, right? If you're tracking what you're doing, you can actually do something about um, your impact. And, and that looks a little bit different depending on the sector. So, you know, a corporate might be very internally looking, particularly if it's a service-based business like ours is. Um, we don't really have a huge supply chain. But what we're also seeing is um, the asset management sector really coming alive to this. So sometimes my clients are quite advanced because they've got um, an ESG person or an ESG team in place already. Um, and they're very clear what they need. They might need some help with their due diligence. They might need some help with materiality assessments for portfolio companies. Um, but equally, I'm speaking to a number of asset managers right now that are, are in the same space where they know they need to do something. They're just not sure what. So we're talking to them about their responsible investment policy, um, becoming a signatory to UNPRI, the principles of responsible investment, what due diligence looks like in the context of what they do um, and what they ought to be tracking going forward. And that's that's partly complying with regulation, but also partly trying to get to the value add of, of ESG, which is saying what's actually relevant for this business, whether or not the reporting framework and regulation captures it. You need to know what's relevant so you can improve it. And, and is it very much a case of not one size fits all? Or, or if, if someone's listening to this now and, and probably fits into that bucket of, I know I need to do something, but I don't know where to start. Is, is there, a, I suppose, a quick win that they can do 
or is it effectively does it just depend on the type of business that they are and and, and what potential disclosures they may have to to provide in the future or yeah the guiding principles behind sustainability are probably the UN Sustainability Development Goals, which are 17 goals that pick up on all the different environmental, social aspects of um, ESG and sustainability. So they're a good place to start framing your thinking around this topic. And what you're looking at really when you run through that list is, well, how does my activity and my business impact each goal? I think what people often struggle with is sort of thinking about their influence beyond their business so you have um, your legal entity and you have your specific activities and you probably outsource various steps or you buy something in that's already gone through a process your thinking doesn't start with the product that comes in the door to you it actually goes right the way back through the supply chain things that you think are out of your control you actually have an influence over and therefore you need to capture so that supply chain piece I mentioned where it's running off and starts with a raw ingredient in um, you know, the Far East or something like that, that's a consideration you need to have and you need to think about what are your suppliers doing for you on that? How do you engage with them? Likewise, when the product or service leaves your door, what are your clients doing with it? What are you enabling there? Um, and how happy are you with, with what's going on once you've delivered that product or service? And it's all framed under the SDGs. And there's different frameworks and standards out there that try and pull that together into something more specific. So whether that's the World Economics Forum's um, measuring stakeholder capitalism approach, which takes the SDGs and maps them into four pillars of governance, people, planet and prosperity. That makes it really easy to understand. That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, all the super detailed um, sustainability reporting standards that we've been discussing, the things like SASB and um, GRI, which are quite heavy going um, and possibly not a proportionate response if you're just starting on your journey, um, yeah. but it might be somewhere to get to. There's lots of acronyms, aren't there? <laughs> lots of acronyms to get our heads around. It's a nightmare. It's, it's called the alphabet soup for good reason. <laughs> uh, and as was just just finally, the, the last time you were on, which, which you mentioned was last June, uh, they just mentioned uh, the TCFD uh, consult. And, and as you've mentioned a few times, TCFD and, and the various disclosures, mm-hmm. et cetera. So you just wondered what update there is now, where, where a business is at in terms of what they need to be considering or what should they need to be considering that they might need to be playing catch up on, on now. Because I know certain things are, are coming down the line very quickly now, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we last caught up, we were, I can't remember, it was just before, just after the consultation came out, but this was from the UK FCA who are rolling out the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. So this is their, their regulatory piece that's entirely climate-focused. That consultation occurred, it closed in September, and they brought the final rules out on something like the 23rd of December. So very few people noticed them because they were all off on Christmas holidays. Um, So those rules are in place now, they're finalized, they're in the FCA handbook. They capture all listed companies. Previously, it was just premium, but now it's including standard listed companies. Um, Does Does that include AIM as well? No, so... AIM, because AIM isn't on um, the FTSE, the London Stock Exchange official list, it's not considered standard listed. Um, AIM companies get caught by uh, rules that Bayes brought in in the UK, which tackle large private companies. 
serve that over um, the large company threshold. I'm trying to remember what that is. It's something like 500 million revenue, I think, um, and a certain number of employees. Then you get caught, but you don't get caught just by virtue of being listed on AIM. Um, you, the other captured um, groups, asset managers with more than 5 billion under management, um, life insurers, same, banks, same. So pretty much the whole regulated sector in the UK um, is caught now by, by these TCFD disclosure rules. Um, and that's reporting things like your greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and it's also interestingly forces climate um, scenario modeling. So you have to say what happens to your business, your cash flows, if the world's temperatures increase by two degrees, by four degrees, uh, by six degrees, whatever it might be. Um, and you need to do a bit of thinking around that, which is particularly difficult for asset managers who have a portfolio companies they need to think about that for. Yeah, thank you very much for your time, Harry. It's uh, it's good to have you back. And we'll put more information about uh, the accounting for sustainability in the podcast description, as well as information on ESG from, from a KPMG perspective in there and also on how to reach Harry. Thank you very much for joining us, Harry. And it's good to have you back. Thanks, Tim. Great to be back. If you'd like to learn more about KPMG Impact or discuss your ESG business needs with our team, please visit our website in the link in the podcast summary. Thank you for listening. See you next time.